Father God, I thank you for your presence tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth and your spirit. Thank you for Anthony. Thank you that he is a gift to your church. We are honored to receive the word that you have put in his heart. I pray that you would fill him with power and confidence and authority. And I pray that, that you would move through him to bless and equip your congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Anthony, take it away. Thank you, Justin. Hello. Welcome to New Day Vine. Guys, we are going to start a sermon series right now. I was going to say this month, but it's today. Actually, really, the series is for next month. Strange but true, because we're still in November. But tomorrow will be in December. It's going to be much clearer from here on out. All right. The title of the series is Truth is We Need Grace. What is it about? It's going to be loosely based on Advent. Okay? Today's message is all about hope. And I want to say something before I really start. And that is I want to assure you that you might not be wrong. Your life might actually be as bad as you think. And that's perfect. Amen. And we're going to flesh that out for the rest of this message. So what is Advent? In case you don't know, if you didn't grow up in a liturgical church, which I did not, actually, so I knew this was a thing, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Not a big explanation, just a, a little heads up. It's been celebrated in relationship to Christmas since the Middle Ages, right? Originally, it was 40 days of fasting and prayer, then it got shortened to four weeks. And the four weeks look backward to Christ's coming, and this is important, forward to Christ's second coming, Right? So it's focused on what happened. He came as a baby, and he's coming again eventually. So it looks backward, and it looks forward. And the four themes of Advent are hope, faith, joy, and love. Today, we're going to focus on hope, but as I just said, that didn't sound very hopeful, right? Like, your life might actually be as bad as you think. <laughs> Seriously, that's not a joke. I know I do joke around a lot. It might be. Some people have very hard lives, and that's perfect. And I'm going to explain why that is not an insult that you should slap me for, why it's actually good news. First, let's talk about when Jesus came. When Jesus came, he came into a world that at least for Israel, the nation of Israel, all hope seemed to be lost. And what we now would call probably zero or two, you know, AD or BC, I'm not sure which one, zero or two, year zero or two, when Jesus was actually born, he was born to a people who had good reason to have abandoned hope, okay? One of the reasons that they could have abandoned hope was because the old pattern was disrupted. The way that things were supposed to go was not happening. They had books of history. They had the Old Testament. They studied it. They read it a lot. And they knew how things were supposed to work. Since the very beginning of creation, right, with God's people, God blesses and favors his people, Really for no reason, just because God blesses and favors his people. And then, we all start acting like fools. Eventually, God finally judges us. We repent, and then God blesses and favors us again. And again, and again, and again, and again. There are so many ups and downs, right, with God's people turning their backs on God and then turning back to God. I actually couldn't find a definite number. I didn't want to reread the entire Old Testament and keep a tally to count. But I can tell you that in the book of Judges alone, there are seven cycles of the nation turning their back on God and then repenting. It happens over and over and over again, but it always ends the same way. The people repent, and God restores them to favor. Well, God judged them differently in 722 B.C. And if you know anything about Israel's history, 
something happened in 722 that was unprecedented, even though these people had been judged before. The nation of Israel had split into two kingdoms at this point. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Judah. In 722, the Assyrians sweep into the northern kingdom, demolish everything, carry all the people away, and they are never heard from again. That's it. Historically. They're gone. Now, that did not happen before with any of the cycles of judgment, right? There was never anything that severe. And God had been hinting that a big judgment would be coming if they, you know, kept on doing this, turning their back on God thing. And the big judgment came. And the shocking thing is that the southern kingdom that was left didn't get the heads up, right? That they needed to be really serious about being committed to God and living according to his law. So a couple years later, really, 586 B.C., the Babylonians sweep into the southern kingdom. They destroy the city, they destroy the temple, and they take the people into exile. Now, these people are heard from again, really. We, the Jews that we call Jews today come from the term, or the word Judah, right? Because the nation of Judah was the only thing left of the nation of Israel. So now they're taken captive, and you think, okay, here's your sign to repent, right? And then what happens? God restores you to favor. The people repent, and nothing seems to happen. For 586 years, when Jesus comes, they are still oppressed, and there has not really been a dramatic upturn. There was a small one, but we'll talk about why that kind of doesn't count in a minute. So, 586 years of judgment. You would be right as an Israelite, to look at history and then look at the moment you were in and say, I don't think it's ever been like this. I don't think it's ever been this bad. I don't think the judgment has ever been this severe or lasted this long. And you would be correct. You might be asking questions like, will we ever be restored to favor with God? And if you want to personalize this, I encourage you to do that for the whole message. Just insert I instead of we. And have you ever wondered, will I ever be restored to favor with God? I don't think it's ever been this bad. And you might be right. For this reason, hope seemed to be lost. But that wasn't it. Building off of that, there seemed to be no way out of Israel's situation, right? So you have lots of cycles in the Old Testament people sin, some people come in and oppress Israel, and then God raises up a champion, right? Or a few champions, and they push back the evil oppressors, and they're restored to favor and they get their land back, right? They fight, they win, they get the land back, they get oppressed, they fight, they win, they get the land back, and this is, this is a pattern, right? But they can come up for air every now and then. All they need to do is repent. Well, that didn't happen this time. After the Babylonians demolished the southern kingdom in 586, the Babylonians are defeated, but not by the Israelites. I'm sorry about this small font. I took a bold risk and went with size 24 font instead of, the, I know, it's crazy. So the Babylonians are defeated by the Persians. And guess who's still in captivity? The Israelites, right? And then in 515, they get favor with the Persians and they get sent back to the old city that had been destroyed. They get to rebuild the temple. Yay, they rebuild the city. And then eventually, by about 425, you have these two powerful leaders actually trying to get the people to live by the law again. Guys, this looks like national repentance. 
just like every other time. But it doesn't happen. They don't, they don't get the head, they don't get the, the, the leverage, right, on their captors. They stay oppressed. And in fact, eventually the Persians get defeated, but not by the Israelites, by this guy named Alexander the Great, who sweeps in and just conquers everybody and brings Greek culture with him. Eventually, Alexander the Great dies, but not because of the Israelites. He just kind of kicks the bucket. So he parcels out his land to his generals. So now they're under the thumb of the Ptolemies. And like, who the heck are these people? How did they even get us, right? We've gone through Babylon, and then Persia, and then Alexander, and now we're being ruled by Alexander's lackeys? Seriously, here we are with our temple rebuilt, we've repented, what's going on? And it doesn't get better. In 200 BC, the Seleucids defeat the Ptolemies, so now they're under the thumb of new people. In 167, the Seleucid monarch Antiochus IV Epiphanes P.S. Some of the names of these guys, if you ever read the history, it's like, that is an intense name. Like, who names the kid Antiochus Epiphanes? That's pretty sweet, actually. Anyway, he's a bad dude. He desecrates the temple. I apologize for saying his name was sweet, but it is kind of cool. So he desecrates the temple, which has already at this point been rebuilt. We're on temple number two, okay? So it's desecrated again, which angers the Jews enough to rise up and rebel. And finally, in 140 B.C., the Jews shake off the Seleucids. But this is not exactly an old school return to God's favor and dominance like it was before because everybody in the world knows that just over the next hill there are these people called the Romans who are systematically taking everything. And it's only a matter of time before they walk over and in 63 BC Rome conquers Judea and now they are just a province. 586 years of not having a return to dominance as God promised. Being conquered by new people and new people and new people. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. And if that happened to you, by you know, 1 or 2 AD, you're under the thumb of some pretty powerful emperors. You know, you certainly must feel what we now know from history, right? That Rome is not going anywhere for a long, long time. That this is a shadow you are probably not getting out of. And so, yeah, why would they have hope? Things are obviously much different than they ever were before. You might ask yourself, have things ever been this bad? And the answer would be, no, this is as bad as it has ever been. You might ask questions like, come on, clicker, will we be conquered and depressed forever? Is this just the new normal? Should we give up? Why should I have hope? But it's worse than that. They also had an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. So from the very beginning of the Israelite people, God gave them an identity, right? They were specific. They were set apart. They were holy. They had a whole way of life that was unique by design. They were supposed to stick out like a sore thumb. God's whole plan was that when you saw his people, you would know, oh, those are Yahweh's people. But now their very way of life seems, forgive me, but kind of laughable, right? I mean, they used to base their life around the temple. And when you look in the New Testament, they're still very proud of the temple. You still have a bunch of people that come to see the temple. Uh, you have a bunch of festivals that demand to go to the temple. I mean, the apostles at one point are like, oh, look at this amazing temple. And Jesus is not impressed. And the open secret that they probably didn't talk about in mixed company was that isn't it embarrassing 
to have a temple to the all-powerful creator God in a Roman province when we've been under the thumb of other people for half a millennium? Is he even here? We've already rebuilt it a couple times, right? It was on its like third refurbishment by the time Jesus got there. Herod the Great was adding new stuff to it. When the temple was originally built, you had the glory cloud, you had the promises. That had never happened again. Is God really even home? Should we be basing our whole culture around this thing? It didn't have the same impact. And then you had the law. You know, they weren't great, God bless them. We wouldn't have been great at it either. At keeping the law when they were ruling themselves. Now they didn't even have the authority to live by God's law without asking Rome. You want to base your distinctiveness and your identity on that? How embarrassing. And then you had the prophets. So you read the Old Testament. Man, the prophets are characters. I mean, there's no way around it. I mean, they do crazy stuff, right? Like you've got prophets laying on one side for like six months to make a statement, right? You've got, I think it's Isaiah, building like a mini Jerusalem and like laying Ezekiel and like laying siege to it with like models. I mean, they were kind of wacky, you know? And they had a knack for really aggravating kings. They had a knack for making the whole nation kind of wish they weren't there, you know, because they're saying God's inconvenient truth. And then they're gone for 586 years. And you feel the fact that even the rebukes of God in a way are an encouragement because they show you that you are his. In Hebrews, you know, the writer of Hebrews says, don't despise God's discipline. He disciplines his children. And if he's not disciplining you, that actually proves you're not his child. For over 500 years, there has been no prophetic discipline. How would you have thought about that? If you were a Jew when Jesus was born, is dad gone? Is he still around? Does he still even care enough to tell us we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing? And then lastly, the Jewish culture. Ever since Alexander the Great conquered and brought in Greek culture, which was worlds different than anything the ancient Near East had ever seen, there was a movement among the Israelites to just get rid of these, you know, old ideas, man, these archaic ways of living. You know, they wanted to start going to the gym and doing all kinds of Greek things. And why not? Where's God anyway? He hasn't done anything for us in hundreds of years. Why should I get circumcised? And also, I'm going to go see the gladiatorial games because why not? You know, the culture itself was fracturing. They were in an identity crisis, individually and as a people. And that will make you lose hope. If you're asking questions like, who am I? Who are we? And what am I to God? These are hopeless questions, right? They're drifting. They don't know who they are. That's nasty. And then there's one more I want to address. And this is maybe the big one, I think. And I think we still struggle with this as Christians today. And that is that the last chance obviously seems to be gone. 500 years of prophetic silence getting dominated by enemies and having God's promises not come to fruition anymore when they used to. You would start to wonder if maybe the jig was up. So, I, I actually Googled how many times did Israel turn their backs on God and then God forgave them. And I didn't get a clear answer. And then I tried it a few different ways and nobody gave me a clear answer, but I finally found this one like kind of snarky 
website that had this exact thing. Bible question. How many times did the children of Israel stray from God? Bible answer. Not sure man could number the times Israel strayed from God. <laughs> kind of sardonic, but true. This man was not going to reread the entire Old Testament and figure it out, right? But the answer is obviously a whole lot. And if you were a Jew, when Jesus was born under Rome, you would be justified in saying, I think we actually blew it. I think all the chances are gone. I don't think it's ever been this bad. And you would be right. And you would have biblical reason for thinking that. In Jeremiah 32, verses 30 to 31, when Yahweh is actually telling his people, this is it. You're going to be taken over. He says this. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but arouse my anger with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. From the day it was built until now, this city has so aroused my anger and wrath that I must remove it from my sight. If that was the last thing that God said to you before he peaced out and you got taken over, you think you'd hold hope for long? How many hundreds of years do you think you'd hold out hope? Right? And are there promises that I'm blatantly ignoring? Yes. I'm trying to create a mood. Come on, man. 586 years is a long time. Rome was pretty powerful. How would you maintain hope when you would be justified in saying it's never been this bad for this long? So all of that is true. You'd be asking questions like, should we just give up on being forgiven? What's the point anyway? We've tried the repentance thing. He's not coming through like he used to. In fact, all of these questions would be justified. Will we ever be restored to favor? Will we be conquered and oppressed forever? Who am I? What am I to God? Should we just give up on being forgiven? 586 years is a long time. That's hopelessness, man. And yet, in this situation, that is actually the worst time ever for the people of Israel, not metaphorically, literally, the Bible calls just the right time. In Romans, it says that at just the right time, Jesus came and died for the ungodly. And in Galatians 4, it says that when the fullness of time had come, and that word for time is kairos, that means when the right moment in history had arrived, God sent forth his son. The worst time ever. Perfect. Why? Because God's plan is not anything that anyone could have foreseen. They were justified in wondering if they should give up hope because they couldn't understand what God planned. David Husick points out that the world was prepared spiritually, economically, linguistically, politically, philosophically, and geographically for the coming of Jesus and the spread of the gospel. All of that at literally the worst time ever. Worst time ever, perfect time. Is that crazy? That's wild. You'd almost forgive people for totally not getting it when Jesus shows up. And that's exactly what happens. To a people wondering if they will ever be restored to favor, to a people wondering under the grips of Rome as Jesus spoke the words, wondering if they will be conquered and oppressed as a people for the duration of eternity, 
Jesus has the gall to introduce his ministry in Luke 4, 18-19 with the words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus in a synagogue in a Roman province, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He sent me, Jesus, to free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you think he knew how ridiculous that sounded coming from a small town carpenter under the thumb of Rome? But it was true. Worst time ever? Perfect. And no one understands but Jesus. To a people who are wondering, you know, who am I to God? Have we lost our identity? Jesus has the guts to say, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus, as God, to the people who believe he has come, as God's Son is saying, you are going to be my friends. We're going to end this contractual obligation relationship that we've had, and we're going to change things a little bit. Mm. You're going to be friends of God. Do you think that sounded a little ridiculous in a Roman province after 586 years of God not coming through? Maybe. How about when John writes that you're actually going to be children of God? That sounds even better than friends. But let's not forget, the people that were reading this and hearing this were in the worst time ever that God called the perfect time. The tension is real. Who could possibly understand it except Jesus? My favorite one. To a people who are wondering, and maybe you're wondering this, and if you are, I hope you are, because this is a great answer. Have I messed up for the last time? Will I ever be forgiven? I've never felt this judged for this long. Certainly the last chance is gone. Yahweh, in the person of Jesus, discloses a little bit of his character and says this. Luke 17, 3-4. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now here's the crazy part. This is God's heart. If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Other translations say, you must forgive him. Why? Because that's how God works. That's his heart. There's a whole lot in the Bible about avoiding willful sin. It's very bad, don't do it. And there are a ton of promises saying that every single time you come to God and you say, that was abhorrent, I hate it, I'm sorry I did it, I don't want to do that again, I repent, you are forgiven. Two times, three times, seven times in a day. That means every time you repent, you are forgiven. That's good news. And we hear that now as good news. But how would you have heard it being a member of a people that has been seemingly ignored by your God for 586 years. It would have been ridiculous. And Jesus knew that because no one understood the plan to Jesus. And the plan was for the worst time to be the best time. I want to close with this. This is Yahweh calling his shout in the Old Testament that the world was going to change that the way he was going to redeem was going to change and that people wouldn't understand it, but it was going to be the most amazing thing ever. Mm. This is in Isaiah 43. Okay, check this out. Isaiah the prophet says, 
Thus says the Lord. And this isn't immediately a quote from God. This is Isaiah reminding you of which Lord he's talking about, okay? Thus says the Lord, you know, the one who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. The Lord who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty men. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like a wick. What is Isaiah reminding the people of? That's right, the Exodus. He's like, I'm about to tell you what God says. You remember the one who saved you militarily when he brought you out of Egypt. The one who crushed all the chariots. Remember that guy? And everybody would go, oh, yeah. I mean, we still remind each other about that. Absolutely. God fought for us and won. Here's the quote from the Lord. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of your past. <laughs> they have been hanging their hat on this moment of the Exodus where God literally fought for them literally, and literally killed their enemies to deliver them. And the quote from God is, don't think about that anymore. Mm -hmm. Why in the world should they not think about that type of deliverance anymore? Well, Yahweh explains. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. But will you be aware of it? I am going to save you and deliver you as amazingly as I did in the past. But we're going to do it a little differently this time. And I bet you won't even notice, says God. But this is how amazing it's going to be. I will even make a roadway in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Think about what that imagery is. If you are lost in a wilderness, you are lost. If a road shows up, you are no longer lost. You have a way to go. And if you're lost in a desert, you're about to die. Because there's nothing to drink in a desert. But if suddenly a river came out of nowhere, which, do you ever expect rivers in a desert? No, and why should you? That's why they're called a desert. It would take an act of God to create a river in a desert. Just like it would take an act of God to have a road plopped down in the middle of the wilderness and save your tukus so that you weren't lost and dying anymore. But God is saying, this deliverance I am going to do for you is going to be so new and so amazing and so not military that you'll feel like you are dying in the wilderness. It will be the worst time ever. And I'm going to plop a road and a river in that thing. And you're just not even going to believe it. No one could have foreseen that this peasant carpenter who had all this big talk planned to actually die as a criminal only to rise from the dead and drop the spirit of God on earth that would erupt in power so magnificently that 2,000 years later we'd be talking about him in Michigan. <laughs> That's a road in the wilderness and a river in the desert and no one could have seen it coming. And I want to tell you this is still the way that God works. So if you answered that question I asked originally at the start of the message, if this is the worst time ever in your life, perfect, because God is still making rivers in the desert and roads mm. in the wilderness. I'm going to end with this image. This is a desert. This is the Kalahari Desert. Anybody know the Kalahari? It's in Africa. It's pretty desert desert. And this plot of land looks like this a lot of the time. But this plot of land is called the Akavago. Has anybody heard of the Akavago? The Akavago only looks like this until almost 
miraculously, almost overnight, all of a sudden it looks like this. It's one of the great wonders of the world. Every year, the desert floods for like 2,500 to 5,000 square miles. And it becomes a wetland paradise every single year. Because there's a river delta in the middle of the desert. Why? We have no idea. <laughs> but when rains increase upstream enough, all of a sudden, it goes from desert to paradise. Overnight. I want to encourage you guys. Have hope. Because this is a picture of what God wants to do in your life. Just pray that you will have eyes to see it. Amen? Amen. 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 Here's Good Justin, word. guys. Thank you.